the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, well, dramatic scenes over the weekend and today as floodwaters again are threatening towns and also devastating farming communities as well. But everybody is tired, right from the top, from the incident management team, right down to even the farmers on the ground. It's a long, long event and it doesn't look like finishing with La Nina, planning to stay around for a bit longer. You can always send us a text about what's happening in your neck of the woods, 0467922684. That's a number to text me here at the Country Hour. We'll also look at the issue of water buybacks, a surprising announcement about uh, 50 gigalitres, uh, the green light being given to that. Uh, some more on that shortly. But first, let's look at the flood information. ABC Radio. Flood information. This is a summary of the latest weather warnings and flood information following that heavy rainfall from the weekend, which caused flash flooding and renewed minor to major flooding in parts of the central west, western plains and Riverina. The New South Wales SES is directing people in the area of Derry Wong, the low-lying areas there. You must evacuate now because of dangerous floodwaters. That's just been updated from the SES. Also, an emergency warning to move to higher ground is in place for uh, Ugara and Molong. SES are particularly concerned with the situation at Ugara. And asking people to avoid the area if at all possible and to follow SES guidance. Flash flooding is making it unsafe to evacuate the area. You should immediately go to higher grounds, such as inside a sturdy multi-storey building with access to upper levels. Higher natural grounds, such as a hill onto the roof of a sturdy building, do not enter the roof cavity as you may become trapped. Move as high above ground as possible. You may now be trapped without power, water and other essential services and it may be dangerous for the New South Wales SES to rescue you. There's an emergency warning to evacuate now. It remains in place for Canoundra with an evacuation centre at Canoundra Public School on Tilga Street. There's watch and act warnings to prepare to evacuate. Uh, they've been issued this morning for the Western Plains Tourist Park, Dubbo, parts of Canoundra, parts of Burrawa near the river, the Tumut Caravan Park as well. There are some uh, further 30 communities with current watch and act warnings in place. The river warnings, the latest flood warnings, major flooding is occurring on the Balubula River at Canoundra, the Menagerie Creek at Ugara, Lachlan River at Gemalong, Condoblin, Uabalong and Hilston with the renewed major flooding possible from today at Nanamai, Forbes and Cotton's Weir. On the Macquarie River, major flooding continues at Warren and is possible for this afternoon in Bathurst. Moderate flooding is possible at Dubbo by Tuesday morning in Narromine on Wednesday. Uh, the Bell River, moderate flooding is possible at Wellington late, uh, later on this evening. Molong Creek, major flooding continues at Molong. Some amazing scenes at uh, Molong over the weekend. Mur- uh, the Murrumbidgee, major flooding continues at Darlington Point and Hay. Moderate flooding is occurring at Bell Ranald with major flooding possible in the coming weeks. Moderate flooding continues at uh, Narandra and the Bogan. Major flooding continues uh, at the Mulgawarana and um, uh, Golgan, where further rises are possible. Rainfall has caused river rises at Peak Hill. Moderate flooding 
uh, may occur there this afternoon. Major flooding is occurring on the Bowen River at uh, Walgett and Brewarina uh, and Mogul Mogul. Uh, Darling, the uh, flows from the river upstream have caused major flooding at Burke. Your next update will be during the afternoon's program unless there are some changes and uh, there may be a break into programs earlier than that. But uh, today's drive program, though, will also focus for inland areas affected by the flooding as well. So that's the latest flood information. Now, uh, to get a bit of a sense of what's happening on the ground, we heard uh, earlier uh, on this morning from Susan Bennett, who's a unit commander at the SES at Condoblin, talking about what's happening in the towns there, the nearby towns, and also what's happening to the farm uh, those uh, farmers in that region as well and more widely too. But everybody is tired, right from the top, from the incident management team, right down to even the farmers on the ground. It's a long, long event and it doesn't look like finishing with La Nina planning to stay around for a bit longer. What we can't prepare for is the overland flooding that goes around gauges, comes into the, the already swollen creeks and river across paddocks that are full, dams that are full and finds its own way to the lowest point which unfortunately is Condobolin. This has been a statewide event and everybody is tired. Um, we've been activated here since the third week in August and we're only a small unit. There's my deputy Graham and myself and one volunteer who has been available when he's, when he's around and doing a great job. Okay, in a place like Forbes, it's urban, so they might have a thousand houses that have water inundation, which is what they saw just recently. With this area being agricultural, the water spreads out a lot more. We've, we've got homes on properties that have been inundated with water and people have not been able to drive to their farms since March. The water levels just haven't dropped. And as they've got higher, uh, there's been more damage to crops. To, to machinery, stock have been, has been an issue. We've got all of those sorts of things. The other night, Friday night, we got a call to say that a levee bank uh, around a home just out on Park, Henry Parks Way was being breached by water. There's a low spot and it, as it comes over, it washes the dirt away. We got out there with pumps hoping that we could actually keep up with the water. But when we realised that it just wasn't going to happen, we had to go to Plan B and we had a whole team out there, Rural Fire Service, um, Surf Life Saving, Fire and Rescue, uh, the SES, everybody that we could muster um, with sandbags and, and we literally wrapped the house like a Christmas, tr Christmas gift in plastic and laid sandbags. I've been out there this morning and I think we've held the water back. There are a lot of properties out on the farms that haven't had the ability to bring that sort of help in and we, we do have houses that have water through them, sheds, machinery, it's as if we're moving stock where we can but in some cases we just can't get to people. There's a lot of agricultural loss. Um, I don't think we can put a figure on the, the, the monetary value um, but and we haven't had a lot of stock actual stock loss that like we haven't had stuff washed away and things like that but down the track um, you've got disease you've got fly strike you've got wet feet and all those sorts of things that will impact as we move forward but crop loss is a is a big thing one they couldn't get in to harvest their crops and, it, and it, it's such a shame but two they can't get in to sow to, to sow crops for summer and the ground will be so wet that uh, it will be interesting to see if they can even get into so more winter crops again. It's Susan Bennett, a unit commander of the SES at Condobin, talking there to Molly Gorman earlier today. We'll be crossing to Hamish Cole in about uh, 10 minutes' time to get the latest on the ground. He's also in Condoblin. It's 12 past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour. 
on ABC Radio New South Wales. The Federal Water Minister says she's received approaches from irrigators keen to sell their water licences back to the Commonwealth. Last month, the Federal Budget showed a confidential sum has been allocated to buy water entitlements from irrigators in the Murray-Darling Basin this financial year. On Friday, a Senate estimates hearing at Parliament House heard that Basin ministers had agreed that almost 50 gigalitres would be purchased as a matter of priority. Here's the Federal Water Minister, Tanya Plibersek. Uh, Strategic buybacks mean we're going to look across the Murray-Darling Basin system and where there are um, areas where we can have low impact, good value for taxpayer dollars, uh, water buybacks, then we're going to examine those opportunities. And I can tell you we've had uh, a number of unsolicited approaches already. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that when we go into the market for those um, strategic buybacks, there will be people who are interested in partnering with the government to see that water returned to the environment. I I mean, it seems crazy to be talking about this at the moment when there's so much water across Mm. the system and, in fact, so many people are suffering from too much water, towns flooding, in the case of Lismore, third time in 15 months. But we know that Australia, um, you know, in time, will be back in drought and we've got to use this opportunity, this breathing space we've got now, to get the Murray-Darling Basin Plan right. Tanya Plibersek, the Federal Water Minister, now Friday's estimates hearing heard strategic buybacks would happen across New South Wales, Queensland and the ACT as a matter of priority meet a 49 gigalitre bridging the gap shortfall. Shadow Water Minister, New South Wales Senator Perrin Davies says the decision to buy water will hurt farmers and communities. Uh, they've identified 46 gigalitres that needs to be purchased. They've commenced discussions and they've actually um, worked out how much per valley needs to be recovered through that 46 gigalitres. Now, this was not in the Ministerial Council communique, uh, but it has now come out through Senate estimates that um, they're looking to get out there and buy back water now. So 46 gigalitres, uh, it's been described as bridging the gap. Can you just explain what that is? So this is the remaining water recovery. If everything else in the Basin Plan falls to where it is, under the uh, baseline water recovery. So this is not part of the 450 that uh, Minister Plibersek has been focusing on. This is completely separate to that, but it is required to finalise the sort of 2750 part of the Basin Plan. So 46 gigalitres, it doesn't really sound a lot in the context of, you know, a plan that's recovering... Um, more than 3,000 gigalitres, that's including the 450. Are you concerned that it could be, it now looks like it is about to be purchased from irrigators? Yeah, look, 46 gigalitres doesn't sound like a lot, but when you put that on top of the over 2,000 gigalitres that has already been recovered through the Basin Plan, and when you take into consideration that they're talking about buying it back and not looking at efficiency, on-farm efficiency or any other efficiency regimes, this is 46 gigalitres that will come off the consumptive market that will impact on temporary water market prices, that will impact on permanent entitlement prices for remaining irrigators. Make no mistake, this is 46 gigalitres that will hurt. The opposition has maintained uh, throughout its time in government that it didn't want to buy back more water from irrigators. More recently, we've seen New South Wales, the state government, the state water minister there say 
New South Wales doesn't support non-strategic buybacks. It sounds like there's a bit of a shift there in coalition thinking. Would you support 46 gigalitres? I mean, you're in opposition. The government doesn't need you to like the idea. But what do you think about 46 gigalitres of strategic buyback? I guess the key word is strategic and where it's coming from. But when uh, the department broke down the valleys that they're targeting, they've got 10 gigalitres identified for the New South Wales Murray. Now, I don't know where in the New South Wales Murray you can get this strategic water from. There are other areas where uh, there might be a parcel of end-of-system water or a a group. I'm open to looking at when and where and how, but the key thing is, for me, there can't be a negative social and economic impact. For this 46 gigalitres... Sorry, um, Senator, just to pull you up on that, the the socioeconomic test, that criteria, that relates specifically to the 450 gigalitres of upwater, the additional water for the environment to come through efficiency projects. We're not talking about that water in this instance of the 46 gigalitres of buybacks. And that's why I say this will hurt, because they don't have to take into consideration any of those aspects. They can just go in, they can call it strategic, and they can buy away. And that's why I'm worried about this parcel of water. Senator Perrin-Davey talking there to Kath Sullivan. Will New South Wales irrigators say they are disappointed with the news that the green light has been given for that 50 gigalitres of buybacks from irrigators? Claire Miller, the CEO, says that they've conveyed their concerns to the New South Wales Minister, Kevin Anderson, as it appears that he has agreed to the deal. New South Wales irrigators' position is that water should not be taken from the consumptive pool as it will hurt farmers and communities, and there are other, they say, smarter ways to safeguard the environment. We are disappointed by this news, but having said that, um, look, the bridging the gap target is not new. We've always been aware that there are several valleys that are under-recovered for their valley targets. Um, Now, we do not support any further direct or indirect buybacks from farmers that reduce the consumptive pool. And it's a pretty simple reason why, um, as it stands, almost one in three litres of irrigation water in the southern basin is now allocated to the environment. And overall, the basin plan has reduced diversions for farmers, towns and industry from 35% of basin inflows down to 28%. Yeah, so that, that's a big achievement. And it puts the environment in a much better position to survive the next millennium drought, while farmers' survival will be even more precarious. So we don't think the answer to helping farmers to ride out the next drought is to just keep making it harder and harder for them to do so by continuing down the buybacks path and making that consumptive pool even smaller and the water even more expensive. So you must be disappointed that apparently New South Wales Water Minister Kevin Anderson did sign off on this deal. Um, We're waiting to see what exactly is in this deal. Um, Now, obviously, the media focus is very much on the buybacks, but the Ministerial Council um, did, in their communique, actually say that they're working on options to bridge the gap in water recovery, including through strategic purchase. So we understand there's a package of options um, that will go to MINCO in February after consultation with stakeholders. And until we know more about what's in that package, for example, if you are going to have a portion of buybacks in there, what do you mean by strategic, for Mm. example? Um, It's a bit hard for us to make further comment other than we do not support further buybacks 
that further reduce the consumptive pool for growing food and fibre. But I guess, I mean, that was the sort of line that's been run by the Minister, but he's uh, backflipped on that. And apparently uh, there's been some, a lot of irrigators have been ringing up the Minister's office saying, we'd like to sell some of our water to the to, to the Water Minister, Tanya Plibersek, and she says she's taken calls from irrigators and apparently they've been lobbying the New South Wales government to do that and he, he appears to have caved in. Look, you're always going to get a few uh, water users out there who want to sell their water to the government. Um, but but where does that leave say, everybody else? Exactly. Um, buybacks are very divisive in the community. And I think we've had more than enough of the divide and conquer approach from governments to last us a lifetime during this reform. Um, when you talk about willing sellers, um, the fact is all of those water users, or most of them, They've already got a market. If they want to sell their water, they can sell to other water users. So if they're wanting to sell to the government so desperately, it's generally because they know that the federal government is going to distort the market by entering it. Well, they're going to pay more. The they're going to pay more. They're going to pay more. Mm. They will pay well over those market rates and then they'll push up the market rate for everybody else that wants to stay farming. So it's incredibly divisive in the community. And it's a classic tragedy of the commons situation. You know, individuals benefit, but at the collective cost to everybody else with less water at higher prices for everyone else that stays farming. But, and You've got to all, look at the collective benefit here. But it also seems to be, you know, uh, it's it's a political decision that's been made on the basis of a few um, um, uh, high-profile people that have a that have the ear of government or ear of minister or ear of the national party. That must be concerning too for you as a group of irrigators. Well, we would hope that governments, however, are looking at um, what they need to be doing or they should be looking to govern for the collective, to be governing for what's best for the community as a whole and not what's best for different individuals within that community. Um, that's why we have governments. Um, and as I say, we're, we've had enough of the divide and conquer approach from governments to last us a lifetime. You know? And if you look at the Basin Plan... What was the whole point of the Basin Plan was to set sustainable diversion limits in each valley. Those have been set and they're being met. In fact, more than met in most valleys where you've actually got an underuse problem. So if the Basin Plan is all about sustainable diversion, setting sustainable diversion limits and then making sure that all water users are under those limits, then we've already achieved the, um, you know, the outcome that we wanted with the Basin Plan. So what we see... I you know, the danger here is we've still got governments and agencies and the MDBA sort of operating on this, you know, idea of the Basin Plan is not an adaptive management plan, but in fact somehow they're all hell-bent on still just going down this path of it's all about a water recovery target, as if it's not actually about sustainable diversion limits with the intention of ensuring the environment has more water and is, is, is healthier as a result. We're really keen to get beyond buybacks in this debate over the Basin Plan and delivering better environmental outcomes. You know, it's the buybacks keep us in this very contested, very controversial space. It pits people against each other. We don't want to keep talking about an approach that's deeply flawed if we're talking about better environmental outcomes. We want to be talking about how you can work collaboratively and cooperatively with irrigators, with landholders, with community, with irrigation companies to actually 
work around constraints to make the most of the environmental water that we've already got and get the great environmental outcomes that everybody is looking for. Um, but also greater resilience for the environment and droughts, but also to maintain what is resilience we had left for irrigators during droughts as well. That is the conversation that we want to be having and that's what we think an adaptive management, an adaptive basin plan should be all about. As New South Wales irrigators Claire Miller uh, concerned, uh, they're disappointed with the news that the green light has been given to those uh, given for those fifty gigalitres of buybacks from irrigators. And uh, got a text in; someone's just texted in saying forty six gigalitres is more than pro- the proposed Dungowan dam capacity. And uh, someone else has uh, texted about the flooding situation at eighty one millimetres on Sunday at Trundle. Says Dave. He says crops ruined, roads flooded, a number of residents' houses sandbagged in Trundle, says Dave. And uh, Angus has texted in from between Gadooga and Brewarrina saying 60% of the land has been flooded from the Narran land. It's uh, not inundated. It has high ground cover and the cattle are on the the go. But the Bureau forecasts have been accurate for this region. The website is informative. He says the SES have been wonderful on the Darling. Uh, and uh, someone else has uh, texted uh, about that. Don't say they where they were. They said in the last event they got uh, 30 millimetres in the last storm event. So obviously uh, talking about some widespread rain, unexpectedly high totals in some areas. Uh, indeed, uh, we're hearing. It's uh, 26 past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC Radio, New South Wales. As we heard some dramatic scenes over the weekend and continuing is that uh, flood water again is threatening towns and devastating farming communities and crop damage, livestock losses as well. Now, just uh, to give you the latest, the latest from the SES is that uh, if you uh, must evacuate now because of dangerous flood water in Derrywong in the low-lying areas. There's an emergency warning to move to higher ground. And that's in place for both Yugara and Molong. And there's an emergency warning to evacuate now that remains in place for parts of Canoundra with an evacu- evacuation centre at uh, the public school, the Canoundra Public School in Tilga Street. Now, uh, to find out the latest on the ground, our reporter Hamish Cole is in Condoblin and he joins me now. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. So, so uh, quite a few uh, higher totals than expected. Flash flooding causing problems in, as we heard, a range of places over the weekend. Molong and uh, Ugara, some concerns there and still uh, flood uh, waters rising um, all over the place at the moment. Uh, so uh, SES really got their work cut out for them and Condoblin, no exception. Yeah, overnight we had about 80 millimetres of rain and really started at about 4pm and didn't stop until around midnight and it was monsoonal would be the way I'd describe it. It was just ridiculous amounts of water and you know places like Forbes they had 115 millimetres, uh, Orange 90 millimetres so really across the central west really high falls that took everyone by surprise. For Condoblin they were expecting uh, about a maximum of about 50 millimetres and then with this flooding that came this rainfall that came through it's brought about renewed river rises along the Lachlan it's currently at 7.3 metres and speaking with the local authorities this morning they are expecting that throughout the week that will exceed the 1952 flood level of 7.37 metres so 
some real concerns with this renewed rainfall bringing about more river rises along the, the Lachlan River. I understand I've heard that Parks is cut in half as well and they're worried about the river rising in uh, Forbes again and so uh, we might see those those totals move up as well. Not to mention, of course, the flooding in much devastating flooding in Molong and, uh, uh, you know, concerns there, uh, still concerns there at the moment. Yeah, the situation in Molong overnight, some of the, the footage is just incredible with shipping containers being washed down the, the main street of Molong. They saw almost 100 millimetres of rain overnight and all of this is just adding to the Lachlan catchment. This was, or a lot of this rain fell upstream from places like Forbes and Parks and Condoblin where there is a lot of concern for Forbes there. Only just started really the clean-up effort from that last flood uh, and now they have also been cut in half again. Uh, that, that town's isolated and with all this water once again to move downstream from the Lachlan uh, with Wyangula Dam, they're up to 200,000 megalitres of water being released from the dam at the moment. So, you know, huge amounts of mm. water being released and that's only going to add to the, the flooding in towns and the flooding in some of those rural properties um, outside of outside of these areas. And one of the places of real concern as well is Ugaura, um, where there is, as you mentioned, those emergency warnings in place. But just speaking, hearing a few farmers uh, this morning, uh, concerns around stock losses, some early reports that there already has been some livestock lost uh, and they're getting choppers in to assist with the sandbagging effort and evacuating people. So, yeah, some real concerns in Ugaura at the moment and some of those other smaller towns dotted along the central west. Yes, in quite incredible situation uh, and uh, also evacuation orders for parts of uh, Canoundra as well. You mentioned Molong and Ugara there. And uh, so, it's, yes, and the SES has been busy in terms of stock issues and also crop damage. Quite a few of these crops now I'm hearing from a lot of farmers, many of those crops now unharvestable. Uh, just they were hoping to maybe get on there and start harvesting. Now it looks like uh, it's a foregone conclusion and they're worried about next year too. Yeah, it's just another sucker punch. There was, you know, we heard a few people just speaking around, and a few people were slightly hopeful that, you know, maybe in three weeks' time they've, there's been some beautiful sunny days in the Central West the last couple of days and weeks. But this has just really put a, a dash through any hopes that people had of getting on the land. Uh, in and around Condoblin at the moment, the SES, they've had to, to be out assisting properties with sandbagging and, and moving those livestock. And for a lot of people... Just this harvest is is now done. They've put a chalk through it, and they're looking to really save their firstly save their properties, mm. save what livestock they have, and start planning for for next year, which is a real devastating situation for them. But you know, here in Condoblin, there is some concern for um, with this river rises for some rural properties. Speaking with a few people this morning, a lot of people have been out on boats trying to get in and out of their houses and check in on the what damage was possibly caused from from last night um well you know there's a few people who have lost machinery already and had their sheds washed out and yeah so it's just a, a real concerning situation across the Lachlan River at the moment okay hey Michelle I'll let you get back to it I know you've been busy today and uh, reporting on this uh, issue and uh, we'll uh, have updates later on on ABC local radio as well uh, this afternoon but uh, appreciate that appreciate your time thanks for having me Michael 
Hamish Colington Condoblin there, and uh, so the flood situation uh, uh, for those people at Condoblin, the farming uh, people out at Condoblin, and many areas throughout the Central West, uh, uh, the flooding situation going from bad to worse. You're listening to the Country Hour. It's uh, shortly we'll have the latest from the weather details, and hopefully uh, some well, hopefully some good news on the way from the the bureau. We'll find out shortly. But before we do that, let's get some news headlines uh, from Adam Story. Good afternoon. Afternoon, Michael. Well, the SES says that uh, they're still receiving calls from Ugara. Uh, due to the the flooding out there. Uh, They've already carried out a a number of rescues. Uh, That town is under an emergency order uh, to move to higher ground with uh, conditions too unsafe to evacuate. And, of course, also evacuation orders uh, for Molong and low-lying areas of Canoundra. So, yeah, we'll keep you up to date uh, on the hourly news and also the local radio will keep you up to date on what's happening out there. Um, Up north, the jury has been discharged in the case of the uh, officer who is accused of shooting Wayne Johnson outside Lismore Base Hospital in 2019. Uh, the 43-year-old man was handcuffed and had restraints on his ankles when he tried to escape. Uh, now, the two, 12 jurors were told on Friday they could, they could bring back a majority verdict as opposed to unanimous, um, but they've come back today and so they won't even be able to reach a majority verdict um that goes back to court again next month for mention uh and the accused officer has had his bail continued uh the ukrainian president says investigators have uncovered hundreds of war crimes in areas of Kherson. Uh, officials say critical infrastructure was destroyed as the troops withdrew from the region uh and along with that they've discovered more russian atrocities and in turkey uh, more than 80 people have been injured uh after a bomb attack killed at least six people, uh, no one's claimed responsibility. Uh, it happened in a uh, popular uh, gathering square in Istakla, uh, sorry, Istiklal, uh, and the Turkish president says there will be serious consequences for those responsible. And uh, on the subject, I know nothing about cryptocurrency. <laughs> oh, come on. Yeah, I know. Oh, You've got I'm a big stack of it. Yeah, yeah, I'm you got it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they've opened a criminal investigation in the Bahamas into the collapse of the uh, cryptocurrency exchange FTX. Uh, that's where it was uh, based. Uh, and all authorities. The Bahamas. In, I mean, yeah. yeah. Oh, geez. Yeah. <laughs> Alarm bells. <laughs> They're going to look into whether do they, do any they criminal. Have it? Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. do they have any, uh, an extradition treaty with the Bahamas? I don't or? think so, mm. but uh, the locals are going to look at whether any criminal conduct took place before it declared bankruptcy. Funnily enough, $1.5 billion worth of crypto investor funds have uh, suspiciously vanished mm. from the uh, platform. Yes, yeah. yes. I read that story. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so Very interesting. I think cash there's only. A, That's there, <laughs> not even a card. Nah. Just cash. <laughs> You're yeah. so old-fashioned. Got to be holding fold. <laughs> cash is king. Yeah. Mm. All right. Thanks for yeah. that, Adam. Adam's story there with the news headlines. Let's find out what's happening uh, with the weather details. And Jordan Atara's at the Bureau. Good afternoon. Yes, good afternoon, Michael. So, uh, fair to say it was more rain and flash flooding and whatever than was expected, but I guess the, with these systems, as we were saying on last week, you know, with the flash flooding and with those thunderstorms, you never know, they can, they, they can just sneak up on you. Yeah, absolutely. Significant flash flooding across parts of the Central West. Um, locations like Forbes seeing 118 millimetres to 9am this morning, 
the highest daily rainfall um, recorded for the site in its um, history of its observations for right? any month. Right? Yeah, so very mm. significant flash flooding across um, due to that heavy rainfall from storms yesterday. Around a million lightning strikes over the 24 hours to 7 a.m. this morning reported across New South Wales. So widespread lightning activity, basically a lightning strike every three seconds hitting the ground. And as obviously the result of that, we have seen numerous areas seeing uh, river responses. Obviously quite a large escalation over the last few hours with uh, increases in our flood warnings through places like Bathurst and Forbes. That short-term forecast area of focus is for Bathurst at this stage as well as parts of the Central West. Bathurst at the moment being a forecast height of 7 metres coming into the next few hours, again above the levee, so very significant for the township and again one to continue to listen to the SES for advice for how to react and noting rainfall at the moment that we saw over the last 24 hours seeing a potential forecast upwards of 10.8 metres forecast for Forbes as we head towards Thursday and breaching that um, major flood level even by Tuesday afternoon. So again, another another heavy day for obviously flooding in the west of the state and again, another period of time we're going to have to continue to focus and listen to the emergency services. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I was just going through the emergency warnings there. Um, they're saying in regards uh, to certain, like Canoundra, there's uh, an evacuation order there remaining for parts of the town. Uh, they're saying you can go to the uh, Canoundra Public School on Tilga Street. Also watch and act warnings uh, to evacuate places like parts of the Western Plains Tourist Park at Dubbo, parts of Canoundra, uh, parts of Boorawa near the river and the Tumut Caravan Park and uh, also, uh, Derawong, they're saying, uh, must evacuate now. So that's the latest from the SES in regards to that flash flooding. Um, are we going to have any reprieve later on in the week? Is it going to stop raining? Well, there definitely is a trend away from rainfall for the inland areas in the next few days. We'll see a couple of storms around parts of the east, but again, for inland areas, we are seeing a clearing and drying trend across the next couple of days. The next focus day will be as we head towards the coming weekend. At the moment, there looks to be another system that has the potential we may bring, bring some isolated showers and storms, and that obviously sufficiently will be enough that we'll see some localised effects from that. But at this stage, not a widespread event at the current standpoint, and it will just be one we have to continue to focus on. Okay, not a, okay, not a widespread event, so it's not similar to this one that we've just seen. It definitely has, obviously, some ingredients that we want to keep an eye on as we go through the next few days. Obviously, the moisture levels that we're seeing coming through with this system over the next weekend are on the higher side, so there is obviously a chance we could see some higher falls in some more localised areas. And we know from what we've seen over the last 24 hours, if we do get some localised falls, the significant impact of flash flooding is there. So noting at the moment we still are early days, it is one that we'll just have to continue to monitor and see what we can see as we get closer to the date. Okay, all right. Well, we'll as you say, we'll continue to monitor. And uh, in regards to today's situation, uh, stay listening to ABC Local Radio for the latest and check out the SES uh, website. Uh, and uh, also, uh, as I said, keep listening to ABC Local Radio for any changes uh, and also the Weather Bureau website too, Jordan. Some more details there too, no doubt. Updated all the time. Absolutely. We are, again, in a period of quite a bit of flux with obviously our warnings, noting that we are seeing rivers rising mm. and dams being releasing more water. So we are wanting, obviously, the community to be up to date with all our warnings on our website and app. And obviously, as I said, listening to emergency services as they are going to be giving you the latest information for what will be the safest thing to do for where you are. Many of those dams have no choice. There's so much water in them, they just have to release the water, water uh, downstream even though they don't want to. It's just the situation at the moment which is uh, adding to the issues. Um, Jordan, thanks for that. 
Thank you. It's uh, coming up to 20 minutes to one here on The Country Hour. The The Country Country Hour. Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. A new study by scholars in rural criminology at the University of New England has highlighted the high levels of victimisation amongst farmers in New South Wales and Victoria. It shows the high levels of worry among farmers and gaps between farm crime and the reporting in both states. But while confidence in police remains low, it's clear farmers in New South Wales are more likely to report crime and liaise with police since the formation of a dedicated rural crime prevention team, which does not exist in Victoria. Reporter Georgia Vaughan chatted to Dr Kyle Mulrooney, who's the co-director of the Centre of Rural Criminology at UNE, about his research. 81% of farmers have experienced uh, or have been a victim of crime. Nine out of 10 of those um, have experienced crime on two or more occasions. And I think the biggest, I guess, surprise for us was that nearly two out of five have experienced crime seven or more times. So we didn't have a scale that went higher than seven or more times. And so what you're seeing is a lot of victimization, of course, but a lot of repeated victimization um, amongst farmers. The types of victimization uh, varies from trespass uh, being the primary one. This is often overlapping with uh, illegal shooting and hunting, uh, the theft of livestock, as well as break and enter and theft of kind of farm machinery, tools um, and other farm inputs, chemicals and things like that. Obviously, more recently, things like uh, diesel um, with the price spike. Your research shows that only 37.9% of uh, the people you surveyed in New South Wales were satisfied with policing. So what were some of the factors that led to this? Yeah, so in the rural space, it's it's a product of the environment. So let's go back to the example of stock theft again. You know, like a farmer realises they're, they're missing some cattle. Um, they ring up the police. The police ask them, okay, yeah, you know, what's the window of time here in which they were stolen? You know, it could be anywhere from a week, a month, or much longer, several months. And so the police oftentimes are really starting on a back foot when it comes to farm crime. There's not the type of things available in an urban space, usually like CCTV or just people around to see individuals commit these types of crime. And so over time, I think farmers have also developed a sense of frustration and a sort of, you know, what's the point in reporting as well? Obviously, this feeds into the other aspect of reporting uh, in that they have little confidence that anything can be done to sort of help them. Another part is traditionally, at least, a lack of what we call cultural knowledge. So you'll have police officers that, yeah, one of my co-authors has a funny anecdote um, from talking with farmers out in Victoria, you know, about a farmer who reported uh, some ram stolen and the police officer, you know, thought it was an American pickup truck. And it's just that, that sheer disconnect and divide where certain officers might not understand not only the language of what we're talking about here, but also the value. So from the farmers themselves, did they express, you know, how they think police can do better? No, I think farmers want to sort of be engaged with police. They want to see more police. Listen, that's very difficult, obviously, due to population density and, um, you know, the sheer vastness of, of New South Wales and Australia generally that we're talking about in terms of policing density. I think one and perhaps the most interesting aspect that came out of this was looking at that new rural crime prevention team, well, relatively new, 2017-2018 in New South Wales, and being able to gauge farmers' awareness and interaction with this team and how that is actually improving attitudes towards police, confidence in the police, but also the reporting of crime. 
So, for instance, when we control for those who are aware of this team or had interactions with this team, we see that they're much more satisfied in the police generally than those who have not. And I think most importantly, we also can see that statistically they're much more likely to report crime. And I think what this suggests is um, sort of farmers finally being seen and heard. That is, this team understands with, with quite nuance and depth the industry in which they're working. They are very specific, professionalized police unit that focuses on crimes that impact upon these industries. And so they can talk the talk, and many of them have sort of walked the walk. They're ex-farmers, or, you know, they have engagement with rural industry. Yeah, absolutely. That's very interesting. And I think at the beginning of the um, journal article, you note that this specific sort of task force or, or group is only in existence in New South Wales and not Victoria. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, so that's why it was nice having both data sets. We could kind of juxtapose them and compare. And um, Victoria has a variation of it, but they have um, what are called farm crime liaison officers. And those are officers that deal with farm crime. And they're also experts, but farm crime sort of um, encompasses one part of a larger portfolio. And so they'll often get pulled away in other directions, whereas this team is very explicitly focused on crimes that impact upon agricultural, pastoral, and aquacultural industries. Um, and they also have quite high-level training um, in these matters. And so when you bring that together, uh, I think that engenders that level of confidence. And so when you look at the Victorian case, when we ran those types of statistical controls to see whether interactions with this specialized or, uh, police officers in Victoria had an influence on satisfaction or reporting. Um, it did not. Um, and this was only relevant in the, in the New South Wales context where there have been more concerted efforts from, you know, the very top sort of command down of the New South Wales police force to um, provide a robust and dedicated service to um, prevent and combat farm crime. That was uh, reporter Georgia Vaughan talking there to uh, Dr. Kyle Mulrooney. And uh, just this week, the New South Wales Rural Crime Prevention Team received a bronze award in Canberra for good practice in the prevention and reduction of violence and other types of crime in Australia. It's 14 to 1. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. A federal review of the nation's immigration system could have wide-ranging implications for agriculture. Unions are pushing for provisions that will allow foreign workers to move if they are unhappy with their employer. There's also talk of a licensing scheme to weed out shonky labour hire companies and tax file numbers for foreign workers to protect them against underpayments. David Clawton has more. We want to see workers have the capacity to be able to up and go. That is, that is if you're a visa worker working in agriculture and you find yourself on a bad farm but you can shift and change employer that doesn't happen at the moment that's daniel walton national secretary of the australian workers union the ability for workers to move is something the national farmers federation actually supports but richard shannon executive officer of the nff's horticulture council says growers need some protection too the growers and employers pay for it up front but then it's recouped through pay we can't have a situation where workers are leaving their sponsor, their first employer, without those co- costs having been recouped from them um, because clearly there's, there's little incentive then for, for uh, employers to recruit at all because um, they're too exposed. Um, they can't 
afford to recruit from the Pacific or anywhere else if there's a risk that those workers will leave uh, before they've had an opportunity to reclaim those costs of, of you know, flights and, and other things. The AWU says that's not fair on workers or accepted practice elsewhere. Every other industry pays for those workers to come over. In agriculture, workers have their flights deducted. They have deductions taken out for accommodation, deductions for transport, for water, for PPE. Agricultural workers in this country are treated like second-class citizens. And so I think if we're going to have a deep dive into this, we've got to have a look to say, well, what happens if you're coming over to work in construction or resources, and how does that compare to agriculture? Over in New Zealand, we know that workers have got portability, that they can up and go if they are working in an unsafe farm or a farm uh, who's not doing the right thing. Apart from the up-and-go provisions, there are some other obvious things that could change in this review. John Azarius is the former chair of the National Agricultural Workforce Strategy. He's currently a special advisor to the Federal Minister of Agriculture on workforce issues, and he's a member of the panel guiding the review of Australia's migration system. At a recent conference in Canberra, he outlined some changes that he thought would be sensible, and I asked him to explain now what they were. Regulation is what we thought was required, that's why we suggested that the Queensland uh, Act uh, regulating labour hire companies would be a good model to be uh, considered by other states as well and, of course, to be coordinated uh, by uh, Canberra the same way that Canberra uh, coordinates the OHNS legislations around the country. John Azarius has also indicated his support for a tax file number for foreign workers to improve the visibility of their hours and their pay. The recommendation is a simple one, that uh, anybody who comes into Australia whose visa allows them to work should uh, have automatically a tax file number. Uh, This applies to every Australian citizen. Uh, It should apply to visitors from overseas who have working rights. This was a recommendation that was also made in the 2014 uh, report on robust new foundations on the review of the 457, which at the time I also had the privilege of chairing. And at the time, the government endorsed it. And I do not believe that it has been implemented. So we have two independent reviews which have endorsed that idea. The other big problem in agriculture is the illegal workforce. People who come here on tourist or other visas without a work permit but need to work to live. They're often subject to poor pay and working conditions and they're exploited by shonky labour hire companies. Richard Shannon from the NFF thinks that's a much harder problem to resolve. I think the idea of a, that, that simply making people apply for a tax file number will solve the problem of undocumented workers in this country is a little bit uh, naive. Can that be solved? Well, it can be, um, but there has to be a lot of work done on our migration system overall. Um, we, um, as an industry, would, would welcome government solving the problem of undocumented workers. It is a problem, obviously, um, for those workers. They are more open to abuse and mistreatment, but also it, it um, skews the, the competition in our industry. It, it puts um, growers who are doing the right thing at a competitive disadvantage. So it's absolutely a problem we need to see solved, but it requires a massive commitment and investment from government to solve it. 
John Azarius hinted at one possible solution, what he calls regularisation of illegal worker status. We recommended again unanimously at the time that there should be uh, a regularisation of their status. Um, this is obviously for uh, governments to decide whether they want to uh, go ahead with that or not. But it's, it's important not only from a humanitarian point of view, but it's also important from a producer point of view because a lot of these uh, illegal migrants are excellent workers. John Azarius has also identified the Ag Skills Training Program, which is operating in the cotton industry in New South Wales, as a model that other sectors could follow to rapidly upskill for key roles in agriculture, fisheries and forestry, food and logistics. The panel is due to report back to the federal government next year. David Clawton with that report. ABC Radio. Flood information. I'll just give you a quick update of the flood information. The New South Wales SES is directing people to evacuate now due to dangerous rising flooding in the Derrywong low-lying areas. Also an emergency warning to move to higher ground is in place for Yugara and Molong. There's an emergency warning to evacuate now that remains in place for Canoundra. And uh, there's watch and act uh, and warnings to prepare to evacuate that have been issued for the Western Plains Tourist Park in Dubbo, parts of Canoundra, parts of Borowa, uh, near the river and uh, the Tumut Caravan Park. And there's also river warnings and many, many uh, rivers throughout the state that uh, are experiencing major flooding. The Balubula, uh, also the Macquarie, the Bell River, the Molong River, the Murrumbidgee, Bogan, Barwon and Darling. There'll be updates on ABC Radio uh, later on this afternoon or all through this afternoon it's time for markets to bendigo sheep and lambs good afternoon slight dip in numbers to 20,000 lambs and 8,600 sheep prices were cheaper but the market was not as harshly discounted as wagga wagga and griffith last week most lamb sales 10 to $20 cheaper in a market that was very quality and weight driven. While there was 20,000 lambs here, take out the stores and half-finished trades, and there wasn't a lot of truly fat slaughter lambs available, it meant the lead suckers above 26 kilos still sold reasonably okay at 217 to a top of 250 at 750 to 800 cents a kilo. Where the market was more fickle was on the plainer trades with the 22 to 24 kilo suckers varying from $154 to $197 depending on finish and breed type at around $700 to $780. Cents. Same story in the store lambs with the better bred lines with style outselling the rougher types. Store lambs 18 to 20 kilos averaged $137 to the paddock and the lighter 16 to 18 kilos $127. Small secondary store lambs 40 to 110. Sheep also 10 to 20 cheaper. Big crossbred ewes 130 to 156. Merino ewes to 156. Most mutton 110 to 130. Jenny Kelly for MLA. To Corowa Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon. Between three and four inches of rain across the supply area resulted in agents pending just over 5,000 lambs and 3,000 sheep. The quality was plain with only a small buying group in attendance. Prices came back $15 to $20 on heavier lines and $20 to $40 on lighter types. 
medium and heavy trade lambs 140 to 190 heavy export types 26 to 30 kilos sold from 190 to 216 lambs back to the paddock from 18 to 22 kilos sold from 128 to 140 dollars extra heavy hoggets slipped up to 60 dollars selling from 120 to 160 heavy merino ewes sold from 134 and crossbreds up to 126.25. I'm Caroline Ronald for MLA at Corora. To Dubbo shipping lambs. Good afternoon. After more rain overnight, there was approximately 16,000 lambs drawn for a Dubbo. Quality was from good to plain. There were some heavier tray weights, medium tray weights in both old and new season lambs and also some plainer light lambs. There was also a good supply of hoggets. Prices were mostly of a softer trend between $20 to $30 and back further in isolated sales. Costs varied approximately from between 720 to 820 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Light trade new season lambs sold from 119 to 133 dollars. Medium trade weight sold from 145 to 175. Heavier new season lambs sold from 198 to 220 dollars. There was medium trade weight old lambs sold from 158 to 180 dollars. Lambs between 24 to 26 kilograms carcass weight sold from 165 to 205 dollars. Heavier lambs sold from 220 up to $252. Best of the merino lambs sold between 153 up to $229. Good hoggets during the market sold from 130 to $160. Restockers purchased young lambs from 86 to $126. There's still approximately 5,000 sheep and also half their lamb yarding to be sold. This has been Tim Delaney reported at MLA Dubbo. To Wagga cattle now. Good afternoon. 2,700 cattle sold to the usual buying group. However, not all feedlots were operating. Quality improved by with a good selection of yearlings suitable for the trade. Heavy steers and bullocks are in limited numbers and the market did fluctuate over all categories with buyers trying to find a base price. The market weakened for feeder steers, 20 cents and more in places. Trade cattle were 10 to 15 cents cheaper with the exception of veal. The pick of the veal, $5 to $5.54. Trade heifers four fifty to five twelve. Trade steers four ninety to five fifty. Feeder steers medium weight four sixty to five fifty. The lighter weights four ninety to five seventy four. Feeder heifers four fifty to five ten. Lighter weights to five sixteen. Heavy processing steers sold at four forty to five fourteen. Bullocks four dollars to four eighty. Cows suffered a price correction of twenty to thirty cents. Heavy cows three forty to three eighty five with one single pen to four twelve. The Antax MLA. No Forbes cattle sale today. Apparently it's been shifted to tomorrow instead of the sheep sale. Let's go to Tamworth cattle now. Good afternoon. Numbers remain steady at 1,050 head. All categories represented in a mostly good quality penning. Condition was also good. A full field of buyers operated. Market trends varied with lightweight yielding steers to restockers showing little change. 440 to 598 cents a kilo. Medium and heavyweights met weaker demand. Trends cheaper. 406 to 564 and 450 to 532 cents respectively. Heavy trade were up to 15 cents cheaper reaching 500 cents a kilo. Similar trends for the 
yearling heifers to feed. Medium weights 396 to 510. Heavy trade up to 30 cents cheaper, 386 to 458 cents. Export processor demand was much weaker. Market trends significantly cheaper, 40 to 50 cents on most classes. Heavy grown steers 360 to 450, including some milk tooth lines. Three and four school grown heifers 334 to 430 cents. The cow market experienced the strongest impact with heavy three and four schools selling from 330 to 381 cents a kilo. And it's one o'clock.